Welcome, my friends, to another edition of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. And today's guest is Menavon Prague. Before I get to that, uh, as you undoubtedly know, the election happened. By the time you hear this, it will probably have been decided. I'm recording this on Thursday, the 5th of November, and it hasn't been decided. And it's making me a little crazy. Um, I don't know if it's doing the same to you. Uh, my birthday is on Saturday. I will be, uh, you know, an older person, uh, not qualifying for uh, senior citizen status yet, but happy to be here even with the craziness. Oh my God. Um, so anyway, Menavon Prague is a <laughs> another close personal friend of mine. Uh, she's British and uh, she is a fantastic writer. If you had to classify her work, I'd say it's magical realism. Her latest book, The Sisters Grimm, uh, is very exciting. It just came out. Um, you can find her at menavonprag.com. That's M-E-N-N-A-V-A-N-P-R-A-A-G.com. We talk about her name, <laughs> where it came from. Um, she lives in the UK, I believe I said that. She sounds charming, but she also is charming. And she has lots of great books. She has published quite a few. Uh, you may know some of them. Um, the House at the End of Hope Street. Um, you may know The Dress Shop of Dreams, The Witches of Cambridge. Um, Men, Money, and Chocolate. These are all fantastic books um more importantly uh we're going to talk about things like the great british baking shell and other strange british things hopefully this is just going to be the palate cleanser you needed and wanted after what has been a crazy ass time um you know what else is good on your palate is abe's muffins abe's muffins are uh healthy i'm saying they're healthy okay i'm just gonna say it i think they're healthy compared to a lot of the crap you buy on the store shelves um they are allergen friendly they have a whole story about that on their website um uh they're great kids love to eat them you can put them in your kid's lunchbox and not be afraid uh that your kid is eating crap and your kid's gonna actually eat them because they don't taste like the packaging they came in I mean, when you hear the whole, oh, that's healthy, you think, yeah, right, well, that's not going to be good. So their muffins come in lemon poppy seed and blueberry, and they have a chocolate brownie that I will fight you for, and cornbread, and they have some seasonal muffins, uh, like pumpkin or uh, apple cider. You know what? Just go find them. They're in great stores everywhere. Um, and, of course, Menavon Prague's books are in great stores everywhere. And here she is to talk with us right now. Men of Unfrog, I'm so thrilled to have you on Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you, Eric. I'm so glad to be here. Um, as I tell people in the intro, I've known you 
for a very long time, well over 10 years. You've known my wife even longer. And we know each other's families and lots of friends in common. But I wanted to talk to you today mostly about your writing and uh, your life in general. And also, uh, you're one of, I think, maybe the third Brit I've had on now. And it's clear to any listeners I'm an Anglophile. Um, well, I'm especially fond of you, obviously, but an Anglophile in general. And I want to talk about that stuff, too. So we're going to be all over the place. There's no rhyme or reason to this. So you don't have to worry that it's late in your day because it's not like I know what I'm doing either. Okay. <laughs> so you're, you're just going to roll with it. And if anything terrible happens, I can always edit it out. That's magic. It's not live. So perfect. Great. So I'm just going to start that you grew up in the UK, obviously. Where are you from originally? I'm originally from a little town up north called Hull, which is where my parents went to university. And I was born there. And then we moved six months later to Cambridge. And then I never really left Cambridge, except for when I went to Oxford. And then I came back to Cambridge. So you went to Oxford, not Cambridge. Yes, exactly. Now, in America, the only rivalry that we have at that level, because they're the oldest Ivy League schools, is Harvard and Yale. Although my college, uh, which is Union College, was founded in 1795, which is old for America. And some of the more famous people that went there are like the Secretary of State Seward, who made the Alaskan purchase and was Secretary of State for Abraham Lincoln, a couple of presidents, you know, took, but not the Harvard-Yale thing. And people in America think of Oxford and Cambridge as that big rivalry. Is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, when the boat race happens, that's the big one. So, you know, I'm never sure who I should support because I live in Cambridge, but I went to Oxford. Ultimately, I don't really give a shit. So I just choose, you know. <laughs> you know Whoever I wins is who I support. <laughs> I noticed that um, a couple of things about British people. First of all, I'm going to go right to the British baking show because Americans Good, love that I'm show. Bad. You know, sane Americans love that show. Um, we love it for a variety of reasons. One is that people actually help each other while they're competing, which is mm. so anti-American. We don't know how to handle it. We find it adorable. <laughs> you know, somebody's cake is falling and the other person will grab it. As opposed to go, I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to bake cakes and win. <laughs> Is that especially British to fair play? Do you find I think I think so. I mean, I think it's adorable. I love it. I love the show. Like we're watching the new series. Tonight is the new, you know, series. I'm gonna be there eight o'clock with my cake. I love to watch the baking show with cake. I have to be eating cake at the same time. Otherwise, I'm looking at all these cakes and I'm thinking, I want to eat those cakes, you know? So I have to be eating cake. Last Tuesday, it was my birthday. And, Happy birthday. Um, thank you. And I had uh, three friends over, you know, socially distanced and all that. But we're allowed. There's six people allowed in the house. And they all brought cake. And so we ate an insane amount of cake. 
And then we drank hot chocolate, which my brother made. So I have a brother, very luckily, who does the most amazing gelato in England. Um, and so we eat a lot of that. But in the winter, he does gourmet hot chocolate. And I drink a lot of that. So I was literally up until 3 a.m. because the combination of the sugar and the caffeine <laughs> in the chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> But it was so worth it because my friend Ruth makes millionaire shortbread from scratch. She makes the caramel and the, you know, biscuit base. And it is so good. And my friend Virginie, she used to live in Sweden and she makes these like amazing, you know, bread, like cinnamon rolls. But I mean, they take like three hours, you know, it's just, and we were just there stuffing our faces. It was so amazing. And my husband also is a baker. He made a chocolate Guinness cake with like the, you know, the fresh cream and stuff on top. So it was amazing. I'm so jealous. I know that if we came to visit you, you would feed us and feed us well. People oh, yeah. are not going to be able to see you. They don't realize you're a very thin, svelte, fit woman. Yet I've seen you eat more chocolate than a human being <laughs> should probably eat in a sitting. And I'm saying that. And I thought I was a chocolate fan. I think you are more of a chocolate addict than I am. I have to tell you, my favorite British thing to eat that involves chocolate are the digestives that have the dark chocolate on them. Because I feel like, first of all, it says digestive, so it's probably good for me. And they're great with tea. I'm not a tea drinker, I'm a coffee guy. But when I'm in the UK, or when I'm feeling particularly sophisticated, I like Earl Grey. No milk, no lemon, just Earl Grey black, is that how you would call it? Because that bergamot, flavor i believe is what they call it i'm so sophisticated um but i also discovered because of the british baking show there are these biscuits that are i don't know what they're like a sponge bread with a little raspberry in the divot and then covered with a hard chocolate and you can think, get please i think that's a jaffa cake but it, yes but it is orange Okay. Oh, sorry. Right. So it is orange. There's something about that that's fantastic. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the th there's a lot of things about that show that are amazing. First of all, <clears throat> there are words that you people have that is allegedly English. Um, for instance, they were making burger baps last season. I, I thought a bap is a sound a child makes when it's throwing up, but in fact, a bap is a bun like a hamburger bun. Mm -hmm. um, also, and I thought this was only Paul McCartney did, that did this, but apparently every British person just makes up words as they go along. I was feeling all wumbly jumbly. It's like, what? I, I guess I know what that means. You know, um, I mean, some words are clear that, you know, you guys live in flats, not apartments. I can kind of live with that. I was speaking with Juliet Mushins, who's a... Uh, a literary agent. I don't know if you know of her. You're shaking your head that you do. Okay. Sorry, I feel like a, an attorney at a deposition, please indicate on the record that she's from. And Julia talked about the whole word thing and like how she finds it amusing that pissed means drunk for you, but angry for us. 
I got really pissed last night. Very different in different situations. Um, but I'm struck by the fact that British people can live within a driving day of each other and sound like they're from other planets. Yeah. So like, I know what Liverpool sounds like. I know what Manchester sounds like. You hit me with a Welsh person and good night. I have no <laughs> idea what they're saying. If they write it out, it's worse because every word has three L's in a row. Nobody knows what they're saying. God bless the Welsh. I don't know what's going on there. Um, then there's a Cornish guy this year. Was it this year? Is he this season? And he just won Star Baker or was that last season? Oh my God, it's all blending. There's a Cornish guy. Um, and I don't know anything about Cornwall, but he speaks differently. And then there's the Scottish. Yeah. And I'm sh nobody cares here in the US, but of course in the UK they do. First of all, for Americans who don't know, it's called the United Kingdom because there's four kingdoms. I learned this very late in life and correct me if I'm wrong. There is Britain, whatever the hell that means, England, right? There's Wales, there's Scotland, and there's Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland's a whole other, we grew up watching that on TV, so we'll leave that alone. <laughs> but that's uh, a whole thing. And everybody once in a while is like, we don't want to be a part of the UK. And Britain laughs quietly or not quietly to itself and says, aren't you charming? You're not going anywhere. It's a whole thing. It's a, so our politics are far more frightening because there's a lot more of us and we are a lot scarier, but everybody's got their own insanity. But anyway, back to the uh, accents, how would you characterize your accent? Because it doesn't sound like a London kind of accent to me, but I don't know Hull and I don't know Cambridge or Oxford. Are you definitely like that? Or would you even characterize your accent? Well, I don't know. It's really hard to tell from your own accent um, to hear yourself in your head. I mean, whenever I right. hear myself recorded, I think that doesn't sound like me. <laughs> you know, it's really weird. Um, but to be fair, I think that because my husband is Portuguese and we've been together 24 years, um, I have adopted some of his accent because English, British people will say to me, where are you from? And I'll say, English. <laughs> Like literally, Eric, it happens all the time. And then they'll be really disappointed because they thought it was something interesting and exotic. And I'll say, no, sorry, I'm from here. It's really boring. Well, your last name, Van Prague, sounds like you could be Dutch, Dutch. German, that South African. Dutch. Oh, it's Dutch. Yeah. Okay. That is Dutch, but it's not. I mean, that was my grandfather, you know, so they didn't, and they assimilated to, you know, they didn't speak it. So I don't right. speak any Dutch. I've never, I mean, we, it was funny because we went on our honeymoon to Holland. Like the, we're talking like, yeah, 24 years ago. And <laughs> they read my passport and they were like, ah, oh, what of us, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and they start speaking to me in Dutch. And I went, I'm really sorry, but I speak no Dutch. And another funny thing happened to me once. I was at the doctor's. I had this health condition. I had to go and get my blood taken a lot. And after a while, you know, I got chatting to the nurse. We kind of made friends. And she said to me, you know, your English is really good. You speak really good English. And I was like, <laughs> I was too embarrassed to say Thanks, that. Thanks, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I was too embarrassed to say, I'm at 
actually English. I don't speak any other language but English. But I'm glad you think that my English is good enough. You know. I just, oh, oh thanks. She you thought know, I, I was Dutch, obviously, from my name. So I grew up with a very. I had a very different accent myself. I grew up on Long Island, what we would say Long Island, the way I used to oh, speak. Oh, I love that one. Love really, that. it's called a bridge and tunnel accent in New York because fun. if fun. you've seen the nanny on TV, Fran Drescher, they talk, you know, they talk like this. So I used to talk like this because I was from that part of Long Island where you barely get the words out because you're exhausted. And, and, um, when I became an actor, I discovered no one wanted to hire that person. And they wanted someone could actually understand when they spoke. <laughs> and then I, you know, I had, I'm not gonna do it for you now, occasionally a posh English accent because like I did an old coward play or I did a ton of Gilbert and Sullivan. And so, you know, that stuff. But I had to learn how to speak. And I thought, okay, I've cleared up the accent. Now nobody can tell anything. And everybody knows I'm from New York. Like, that's just like, it's in New York. Well, I, mean, I don't say New York, but I guess it's in there. I don't know. But, and that's fine. I mean, maybe it's because, you know, I'm kind of Jewy looking and they just assume he's, where else is he going to be from? Not Texas, you know, not Louisiana. Um, the show, the baking show, I'm thrilled with the addition of that guy from Little Britain. Oh, yeah. Uh, Matt. He, I, yeah. I love him. Yeah. He's crazy. I mean, he's crazy. And I like what I really like about Matt is that he loves cake. You know, <laughs> and he eats the cake. No, because it really annoys me when people are, you know, they don't eat the cake. It's like you've got to love the cake and eat the cake. And if you walk around like that Noel guy, he doesn't eat the cake. Oh, really? I never noticed that about Noel. No, this I, bothers me. I feel oh. like. You know, you're gonna, you have to really live it. You have to be a part of the baking show. Well, do you think, it's very interesting. I didn't think of that until this moment. I, I think Noel has a girlfriend and I honestly don't care what people's sexual preferences are unless I'm in relationship with them. Mm -hmm. But I've noticed there's a lot of gay on that show. Um, for instance, the, the woman who was one of the color commentators before the dark haired woman who was there i think the blonde haired woman was straight the dark haired woman who of course i had a crush on was a lesbian oh yeah mel and sue yeah so, yeah yeah definitely sue is gay and right. then um she was replaced by sandy who was also gay right yeah. sandy who's like a, a little matt. viking right yeah and matt yeah. is matt's crazy open about being gay throughout this season and he's yeah. jokingly hitting on paul hollywood so <laughs> i'm not sure paul paul depending on his mood is either in on it or he's he's a little ready to to ask him to stop i can't quite paul yeah. paul is a little too serious about certain things at times yeah. Although I, I loved the whole Paul Hollywood handshake thing that they did last episode when they had the handshake in a box. I mean, they're very funny. They're, it's a very funny show. Um, and I want to eat everything. Exactly. Um, and I'm, but anyway, back to the accent. So I find all of that fascinating. The fact that all these people live within a day's drive of each other and they all sound like they're from other planets. Just 
it tickles me. Um, you, uh, I also want to talk about British people in cursing, because this is a thing that I've noticed. We love a show called The Boys, which is about superheroes gone bad, sort of. Um, and there's one actor who's actually from New Zealand. He was in Lord of the Rings. I forget his name. My wife is crazy crushing on him because he was one of the writers of Rohan and she's got to think about the writers of Rohan, I'm, as many women do, I'm sure. Long blonde hair, horses, swords, whatever. But he, um, and I can look him up while we're talking, um, but he uses, his character is British in this show. And he's got a pretty hard edge, I'll call it lower class accent. He's kind of a tough, call him a tough. And yeah. um, he throws the C word around in a C way, word. the C word. I can't even, now your face, <laughs> your, your face was a little sh not shocked, not appalled, a little shocked that it was happening. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, not completely appalled. Um, Oh, Carl Urban, very handsome man. You, you could look him up. But his character uses the C word all the time. And I was speaking with Juliet. Um, the C word, well, not, I don't think you would call your mom and say, how are you, you C word. Never, ever, right, but, but it's used much more in the UK than it is here. Am I wrong? Is that a misapprehension on my part? Or not in your circles? In Cambridge, not not successful novelists. They don't throw the c word around, unless it's chocolate. Unless it's chocolate, exactly. I don't know. I mean, I never, even on bro in broadcasting, I think it's very very rare. Oh, okay. I've heard it maybe ten times in my life. Really? Yeah, I wouldn't well, say. I, we say fuck a lot, but not the c word. Right, and that's another thing. You say, I'll say the F word, and you also say shite a lot, or yeah. shit. Bollocks. <laughs> See, I love, I, right, I love bollocks and wanker. Those are great words. I'm not saying I love bollocks. I mean, I love the word bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> um, but first of all, Americans don't use bollocks or wanker, really. We, we say different things. Um, but I noticed that on one of the British baking shows, someone called their mom who was so happy they cursed. Shit was okay, but they said bloody and everybody freaked out. Bloody? Like, bloody hell. Yeah, they said bloody hell. Bloody hell. And somebody was like, oh my God, you're cursing on the show. I don't know, I find all of it fascinating. Very, the show is very like, you know, your grandma could watch it. You know, it's not like, but bloody hell is not a bad I mean, we, you know, we have little kids and it's, it's interesting to find out <laughs> what you use because of course the little kids echo it back to you. Uh, and when a little kid is saying that, it's very funny, but then you have to say, no, 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 don't say that. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and obviously I know your husband pretty well. Um, I don't even think about him having an accent, but I haven't seen him in a while. But like when I go out to lunch with, I suppose last time I had lunch with him, we were both in Hamburg, Germany. So his accent wasn't even an issue. We were both trying to talk to someone who didn't speak English. And my German is very elementary. 
<laughs> so we, we were talking pretty much whether and where they lived, and then we were kind of out of stuff to talk <laughs> And then you're like, this is delicious food. <laughs> yes, fascinating, you know, lovely and whatnot. Um, yeah. Um, so I'm going to transition so brilliantly to your writing career. Um, I know that you, as you said, you went to Oxford. What did you study there? I studied modern history. Modern history. Modern history, which at Oxford is classified as anything after the Romans. So, I know, to you that's <laughs> quite funny. <laughs> I know, I was like, modern history to me is like the Johnson administration, which is, you know, when I was born, like I was born when JFK was president. So, um, I think of that as modern history. But yeah, well, the Romans came up to everywhere, including the UK, so, right? Yeah, so I... So I actually studied the Anglo-Saxons in the, you know, 1600s and the Middle Ages. And so I studied a lot, a big expanse of history, um, but I specialized in Victorian Britain. Ah, um, so for Americans who have no idea what that means, it's Queen Victoria, who was the, is she now the second longest reigning monarch? Now she's the second. Queen Elizabeth has beaten her, yes. That's, now, nobody ever thought that would be possible because Queen Victoria was queen from a very young age and lived very yeah. long for those days. Yeah. And much of it is a widow. She was married to Prince Albert. Mm -hmm. And for people who, you know, at the Victoria Albert Museum, mm -hmm. Prince Albert in a can. <laughs> Sorry. No, um, and a very well-known love affair you know um a lot of times in royalty people marry for almost everything except romance or so we would believe but she truly loved albert and it seemed and you obviously would know much more about that one of the reasons that a lot of people are fascinated by her is that she really really loved her husband yes um, she did and it was very interesting actually because queen victoria was very racy and she loved sex. And she would write these letters about how handsome Albert was and how good in bed he is and how she didn't, she wasn't so keen on having kids. She had like nine kids, but she, you know, they were just like this thing that had to happen if you had a good sex life. Um, and then her eldest daughter had to um, censor her diaries because, you know, of what she wrote. So we have some little excerpts, but it's like, as a historian, this really bothers me that, you know, all of that great material has been lost to history because they decided to edit her. Wow. I, I, I do know that she had a good sense of humor mm -hmm. because I know she was a big fan of Gilbert and Sullivan. I, at least that's my understanding. And that um, they, they made fun of English society as it was at the time and that she really enjoyed it, which I think there are a lot of humorless people at the higher levels of society today. Yeah. Um, but for instance, Queen Elizabeth I, again, a big fan of Shakespeare, who also wasn't above taking the piss out of somebody. He did it very eloquently, but you know, a lot of those plays you know, whether they were histories or not, big people fell mightily. And some people might not consider that mere entertainment. They might be concerned that there was a message to the groundlings about that sort of thing. 
Um, I, I don't know enough to say much, but I do know that Gilbert and Sullivan and Victoria were, were compatible, as I understand it. Um, that whole era, era is fascinating to me because you also have Oscar Wilde and yeah, Whistler yeah. and this whole period where people were talking about aesthetics. You know, women would join these clubs where they would make something called a uh, something people up uh, uh, a living sculpture. They would just stand there. Um, oh well, I'm getting far afield. You, however, took that degree, and mm -hmm. what did you do with it? Well, I mean, the reason why I didn't study English literature, which was my other option was because I was a bit scared that, you know, taking books apart. I mean, I did it at A-level and I loved it, but you had to, you had to really go old English um, at Oxford. So you did Beowulf and, you know, there was translation involved. And then, you know, it was just, I felt that it might destroy my love of reading for fun. You know, oftentimes you do something and if you can, for example, at Oxford, I thought the best job in the world would be to uh, be a film critic because I love films so much. And I thought, can I imagine anything better except for being a food critic than to eat, you know, eat for a living? Can you imagine? I mean, I still think that would be the best job in the world. I think I kind of do. I, my law practice just supports my eating habit. <laughs> you know, that would be amazing. So next best thing, film criticism. So, um. By the way, you and me film. both. I, I, I love film as well. I love film. So I would um, watch these films and I would write about them for the, for the student newspaper. But then after a couple of months, I realized I was sitting there and I was watching a romantic comedy. And I love like, like kind of trashy romantic comedies. I really enjoy them. And I realized as I was watching that I was looking at it in a way to critique it. Right. I wasn't enjoying it. You know, I'd stopped just like being in the moment and watching the film and just loving the film. I'd started to write the piece in my head and I was thinking, ah, what can I say about it? That will be clever. What can I, you know, and I just couldn't be there with it. And after that, I quit my job and I was like, right, I, this is ruined films for me. And then I got a job in a video store and I just watched movies all day. And that was a brilliant job because, you know, and then I just got to talk to other people who love films about films. And that's what I love. And but that's no accident, I, Quentin Tarantino did the same thing. You know? Quentin and, Tarantino loves film. And you can see it when you watch some of his movies, whether you like them or not, mm -hmm. there's the influence of all those movies. Yeah. Bizarre C, D level films that he could find something he loves in, they're in there. Yeah, I'm, absolutely, absolutely. So, so we worked in the equivalent of a blockbuster or whatever you guys have in Britain. Mm -hmm. yeah, Tally-ho tally video. <laughs> it was an independent video store and it was wonderful. And we just sat there and watched films and then people would come in and we talk about films and it was just beautiful. So are you a snob about film? Um. Oh, no, or, because I you love, just said you like crappy rom -coms. I love trashy romantic comedies. Um, I don't really like too much violence. I can't do horror because... Neither. Holly and I don't do horror. And I, we... Yeah. 
I so what are, your, what, what are your top five phones of all time? I Just in this moment. Oh, I'm only doing right. five. That's so tough. Um, we ask the tough questions here. <laughs> is that really legal? What's I your favorite chocolate is coming next? I need to be prepped. I said, don't ask me anything too difficult. This is very difficult. Um, so my first, I know my absolute, like always my go-to is Stranger Than Fiction, which I just like, basically I'm evangelical about that film. And I tell, I just like Holly will know, your wife will know because I'm evangelical about a book called um, The Night Circus. And I found out yes. that Holly hadn't read it. And so I sent her a copy. So I do that, you know, if I love something so much, I just feel that everyone in the world should watch these things or read them because, you know, obviously I'm right. So Stranger um, Than Fiction has two different storylines. It's so good. It's so good that I bought the script and now pretty much know it off by heart. Um, I think I'm thinking the right thing. Of course, Emma Thompson, who you Emma remind Thompson. me of, you have an Emma Thompson quality. Thank you. Eric. You're welcome. I'm uh, madly in love with her. Just so you know. She's, I'm madly in love with her too. She's amazing. She wrote the screenplay for Sense and Sensibility, which is a movie that no matter where it's at, if I come across it, I stop what I'm doing and I finish it. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and if you don't cry at the end of Sense and Sensibility, you have no heart. Yeah, and I can't be your friend. Yes. Yeah. No, no. I when 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 Eleanor finds out that Edward's not really married. Spoiler alert. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. It's fine. If you don't know sensibility, people, <laughs> I'm not gonna pander to you. I know. I'm joking. Um, I'm joking. So you know, and she weeps, and I weep every single time. Me every too. single time. And there's we have a mutual friend called Andy Schneeflock, and he does yes. a great. Um, uh, imitation of the superb late great Alan Rickman. I love Alan Rickman up. in that movie. Oh, he's amazing. I must have an occupation. Yes, this is what Andy does. This is exactly what Andy does. Uh, and then he, um, and I used to get him to do it all the time. I'd be like, Andy, do, do the scene. A Alan Rickman, no matter how much everybody goes, oh, he was amazing. He was underrated. He was still underrated. You can't overrate and Alan Rickman. No, 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 no. Years ago, there was a magazine called Premiere, which I really miss. It was a movie magazine. Oh, yeah? And Emma Thompson did a diary of filming that movie. Yeah, and I they had that diary. Oh, and they had excerpts in the magazine. And one of the things I remember was how she was very upset that Hugh Grant came on set and he was prettier than she was. <laughs> Yeah. You Grant, by the way, who, you know, if people remember, he had all sorts of troubles in the press years ago. Mm -hmm. I don't care about that. I consider him such a hero for speaking out against the fascist MFers who basically bugged, excuse me, bugged people's telephones and then published stuff in the UK press. Yeah. I think he just, he's had it with these people and he's not afraid to tell them what he thinks. And I don't know where he went to school, but he clearly is not an idiot either. I mean, he's done some stupid things, but he's not an idiot. Yeah. I don't think any, I had an acting coach back in the day who said that smart, smart people make smart actors and interesting people make interesting actors. And I think that people dismiss actors at their peril 
because I think if you really like somebody and you see lots of different things in their performances, there's probably a lot going on in that person. That's my thought. Um, and every actor that I ever met, not that I've met a ton of them, but in my short career, I met some very famous people and they were not stupid. None of them, regardless of their looks. Um, yeah, so I'm sorry I got off on the sidetrack, which is exactly what I love doing here. So Stranger Than Fiction, one of your favorite movies. You know, yeah. Based on, oh, in the Night Circus, right, Holly, Holly read that, I know for a fact. I think it might have been during one of our trips somewhere. She had it with her. She was telling me that you, I don't know if she said you made her read it or encouraged her to read it. I sat on her and I said, Holly, you have to read this because it's amazing. Well, we so, also, to be fair, we've read quite a few of your books as well. Thank but we'll you. get to we'll get to that, I promise. But yeah, Stranger Than Fiction. So it's just amazing. Emma Thompson plays a writer and Will Farrell plays the character in her book. Um, and it's got some of the, I think, I mean, if you haven't seen it, you will love this film. Oh, no, I've seen it. Um, I mean, it's, the humor is so dark and I just love it. I mean, one of my favorite, which I can't quote because of current circumstances, people might not find it funny, but there's a scene when Emma Thompson goes to the hospital because she's trying to find inspiration, you know, for how she's going to kill off her main character. Right. And, and it's just, I mean, and Dustin Hoffman. I mean, it's, the whole thing is sublime. Um, the other film would have to be in my top five would be About Time. Oh. Which I, I cannot know. survive that movie again without crying. At the yeah. end of it, my wife and I always hold each other tight and cry like sobbing children. So sorry, please go ahead. Oh, one of my favorite actors of all time, Bill Nye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please. Yeah. So I, I think I was responsible for introducing most of our friends to that film, by the way, because it came out in England first, and I called everyone and said, "You have to watch this." Like literally, just. But I couldn't really send. You know, it's harder to send because we have different DVDs over here than you guys have. Right. We and have it. We have the DVD. You know, everyone ordered it. I mean, it's just sublime. If you don't know it, it's a time travel movie that's unlike any other time travel movie because time travel is almost irrelevant at, mm -hmm. by the end of it. Mm -hmm. What it is all about is love. It's mm -hmm. a movie about a man's love for his son, his mm -hmm. son and his love for his wife and his family. Mm -hmm. But it's also incredibly British. There's something very British about that film. Even though Rachel McAdams, an American, is yep. in it, there's something, and I, I don't mean that in a pejorative or a, or a positive sense. It just is, there are characters in that movie that would not exist anywhere but Britain. There's a brother who mm -hmm. is just, um, what is the, when, you would be insane if you were poor, but when you have money, there's a different word for you. Not eclectic. That's it, exactly. So he's eccentric. We don't have a lot of eccentrics here other than our president. I like. I don't like to use the word eccentric because there's something charming about eccentric. No, exactly. No, we can't no you, do you don't find an axe murderer eccentric. No, 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 no. But this character is eccentric. But this character is eccentric. I mean, being... Uh, 
you know, About Time is um, by the great Richard Curtis, who is one of my favorite writers. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I worship Emma Thompson. I worship Richard Curtis. And it's my ultimate desire in life to one day meet him. Except for if I met him, I just wouldn't be able to speak and I'd blubber. Right. I'm one of those. I, I have worked with famous people and I'm usually pretty okay. I've held the door open. We live in Brooklyn and right now it's like where all the movie stars live apparently in our neighborhood. So like I've held the door open for John Sarah, or you know, the guy from uh, Juno, the young man who was also in, um, there's a famous TV show, I'm blanking on it all. But if you watch The Americans, which is a television show about Russians living in the United States, Carrie Russell and uh, Reese, uh, something Reese, uh, another, an English uh, actor, they both live around the corner. I've held the door open for them at the coffee shop and kind of screamed without screaming. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, well, so just so if people don't know, Richard Curtis wrote a little thing called Four Weddings and a Funeral uh, About Time, Love Actually, uh, a movie that Holly and I fell in love with and have seen a bunch yesterday. Oh, which yes. Is the premise what if? only three people on the planet knew that the Beatles existed. Like all of a sudden they just no longer existed. And forget about the people who are like, well, there couldn't be, like, just put that aside. This again is a love story. And it's full of surprises and delight. And the woman who plays the love interest in that, who was also, she played a minor role in Downton Abbey. Mm -hmm. um, I love her. And another woman who reminds me of you. Um, there's oh. something, yeah, she's beautiful. She was in a great movie that I urge all people to watch. Um, the, oh, the Jersey, the Guernsey. Oh, the Guernsey you know, Literary Peel and Potato Society. Yeah, thank you. Um, Holly is enamored of that film and has made me watch it with her. And on a rainy day like today, which we have in Brooklyn while I'm talking to you, if we are just in for the night and we're looking, we don't know what we want to watch, she'll look at me and then there'll be one of several things that will go on. Love Actually might show up regardless of Christmas or not Christmas. And I have to tell you, I find Love Actually to be a flawed film mm -hmm. that I still love. But Emma Thompson is flawed. Because, well, first of all, I love you granting this. He's very great. But, oh, yes. But Emma Thompson takes what is a fluff movie, really. It's a fluff movie, or appears to be, but it's got levels. This movie has levels. Because Liam Neeson also does an amazing job with his stepson in that film. Yeah. Let's put that aside for a moment. And Kira Knightley, who, I don't know what I'm gonna do about my affection for Kira Knightley, I can't. I know it's inappropriate, I don't care. I love Kira Knightley. If she's listening, which would never happen, I'm sorry, I love you. I'm not writing you, I'm not stalking you. I'm loving you from 3,000 or 6,000 miles away, but I'm just enamored of Kieran Knightley. Let's put her aside oh, for a moment. Let's put a pin in that. You should watch Misbehavior. Oh, I don't is, know this. It, it just came out. Um, I'm writing it down. A couple of months ago here. So it probably is out there, you know, on streaming service. But I actually saw it in a cinema, which was very exciting. I loved her Pride and Prejudice, and I didn't want to. Yes. Holly's like, oh, no, this is good. I was like, no, you don't understand. The Colin Firth six-hour Pride and Prejudice is the Pride and Prejudice, yes, and I'm not interested yes, in yes, any yes, of it. Yes, yes. And then I watched it, and the guy who played the Colin Firth, you know, who plays Mr. Darcy. Yeah, Matthew McFadden. 
who's in an American HBO series about a scandalous family that's a lot like um, a TV media family. Um, and he plays a more minor role. And he plays a very American kind of person. And he is flawless. Yes, Succession, thank you. He's in Succession. I'm afraid listeners are gonna be like, what are they talking about? I'm sorry, Mena and I haven't talked to each other in a while. I love talking about this stuff with you. Listeners, you can go and look up all of the films because you will, you know, experience great joy if you watch all of these films. You will, and I'm not gonna give you all my favorites, but you've touched upon the kind of things I love, so thank you. I want to get to how you decided to be a writer yourself. Because there's lots of people, look, you know, I used to be a literary agent. There are people who follow me on social media who are still agents. I have ex-clients who've gone to other agencies. Um, and I know lots of writers just, and I know the industry to some degree. And there's lots of people out there who claim they want to be a writer, but they never sit down and write the book. Either they're afraid or they don't have the own for whatever it is. Or maybe they just decide it's not really for them. But you, first of all, have many books, or what I consider many books, four or five published at this point, right? Eight. Eight. Holy crap. That's a lot of books. No, seriously. I mean, that's like running eight marathons. Because, <laughs> no, because I would written... find that a lot harder, Eric, I just got to say. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know which I would choose. I'm still in the middle of my first novel. Um, and... I'm about 20% in and I'm exhausted. And it's just, I'm, and I'm a pantser, which is hard. Me and too. I don't know, are you a pantser? Yeah, definitely. Ah, see, and for people who don't know what I'm talking about, there's basically, everybody has their own way of writing a book. There is no right way to write a book, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And it breaks down mostly into two categories. Pantsers write by the seat of their pants. They, some people call them blank page writers. They sit at the blank page and they go, here we go. Yeah, I hope something happens. Along the way, obviously what they write helps them define what will be written in the future, but not always. They reserve the right to go back and they understand that editing is writing or writing is editing. So it's not like they walk away from their first draft of whatever a pantser does and says, perfect, I'm done. <laughs> Far from it. No. Then there's the outliner or the planner. And I know several of those. And some people write 80 pages of outline. Yeah. And they're like a third done with their book because they've really outlined it. And then they have backstories for characters that they may not use what they've written, but it helps inform what they're going to do with their characters. So you're a pantser. That's interesting information. Um, And you, I would say, write magical realism. Would you say that's accurate? I would. And... I keep interrupting you like a man. I'm sorry. <laughs> so how did it all start? Um, so I, yeah, I don't know that I had, you know, an ever yearning dream to be a writer. I always loved books, but it wasn't until I was 18 and I wrote some poetry at school and my English teacher said, oh, this is publishable. And I think that was the first time anyone had ever said anything like that and that planted a little seed so when I was at Oxford I started trying to write like little bits of stories and so on Um, and then basically throughout my whole 20s I I was writing I'm so at some point 
because I graduated from Oxford and then I got a job as a waitress. And then people started saying, why are you working as a waitress when you have a degree from Oxford? And I remember at some point saying to my husband, who I met when I was 19, um, you know, I'm going to do this thing till I'm 30. And if I don't get published before I'm 30, then I'll quit. Because it seems like... Do that thing, you mean write. Yeah. It seemed like 10 years was, you know, a good chunk of time. I know actors who've done that. And then if you don't get it by then, if you're still serious, you give yourself another five years. (laughs) And you keep going. Because you can't do anything else. I know. Well, it's so funny, isn't it? Because when you're 19, 30 seems like really old. Oh, Christ. Well, I can't believe how stupid we are when we're young. You know, I mean, (laughs) for me, it was like 30 was just so old. And if I hadn't have done it by 30, you know, that was like in my teenage mentality that was my thought right but i yeah. just turned 43 and i'm like man i'm so young you know i have no idea how old any of my friends are specifically i mean i had a sense you were younger than me but i always consider you and arthur to be sort of colleague level you know yeah. and i feel very fortunate my wife and i who are older than you i won't out us our age but we're not young we're not i don't know what it's so stupid. It's a number. Well, it's all comparative, isn't it? And well, compared so, to the crust of the earth, I'm quite <laughs> You know, but I think um, it just doesn't matter. It's so irrelevant. But it when really you know, is. Somehow, it, you know, it's like we pick these random things and it's completely crazy. What I also love is when I have friends of different ages, and you are sort of a different generation, right? I mean, sort of, because the music you grew up with is maybe a little different from the music I grew up with. But a lot of people from your era still love my era's music. Like, well, I grew up with the music of David Bowie. And, you know, right. that was, it was, I guess, I mean, I grew up kind of in the 70s. And then the Thatcher music, England. Yeah. The so music punk. Sorry. Punk that, that my parents played was that you know, I think in a way that's the kind of music that you grow up with. I mean, I grew up with the Beatles. When I was 14, I had a major crush on all the Beatles. So when my friends liked all these naff pop groups that were like boy bands or whatever, that no right. one has ever, ever heard of now, like, what was it called? Um, they were mainly American. Boys in the, oh, not Boys in the Hood. Marky Mark. Boys to Men. Oh, oh. Um, well, Marky Mark, his brother was in Kids on the Block. Kids. That was the, yeah. That, that, so, the, so there were these. And sync. Yeah, yeah. So, but I grew up with the Beatles and my stepmom had original Beatle memorabilia. By the way, the Beatles had already broken up probably before you were born. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I bought I bought the records when they came out, like the 45s. Oh. Like, I remember having eight days a week on one side, and I don't want to spoil the party on the other, and watching it go around with the Capitol building and the, the whatever, maybe it was EMI where you grew up. But well, yeah, we so. Had, yeah, we had them too. So we had a gramophone, and we played the, you know, the little records and danced. Mm you know, in the living room and stuff. And I had all the posters that she had had. Lovely. And she even had um, a picture of them that was all signed by all of them. Did she know, did she, like, was she living in Liverpool ever? Or 
Or no, but one time, I think for my 15th birthday, she took me to Liverpool. We got on a train. It took five hours. <laughs> we went to Liverpool. We went to the cavern. You know, oh. we, went, we did the sites. We yeah. bought more Beatles memorabilia. And it was great. Yeah. Oh, man. I, I, I'm a Beatles lunatic, and I know more uh, trivia about the Beatles than almost anyone I know because I just... I was a fanatic and I used to, I used to play all the songs on my guitar and I, yeah, I was just mad about the Beatles. Just crazy. So you must have loved yesterday then. I did. You know, it's funny. At first I was a little irritated at the premise because I just can't imagine a world without the Beatles. <laughs> but I also found it, there was something quite beautiful about how he loved the music mm. and how ridiculous other people can be about things you love without giving too much away about the movie. There's a point where Ed Sheeran wants to change the name of an iconic Beatles hit and it to a terrible, terrible title. And it's just inappropriate. And, but to also watch the exuberance, there's a scene where they record, um, I, th I think I want to hold your hand or eight days a week or something where they're in a little studio and they're doing hand claps with rubber gloves on and the exuberance with which they're singing and playing is it's because the music still has that exuberance in it. It's of a time, you know, people don't understand the sixties were so full of promise. I feel like we could do anything and the whole world was stretched out in front of us. I am taking over this podcast. You're not saying anything. I'm so sorry. But I love the Beatles. We can talk about that a whole other time. I want to talk about your writing. So you're writing. You're, 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 you're loving the Beatles. You're, you're growing up with that music. I have no idea how we got there and how we're going to get back. But let's just... <laughs> well, the Beatles, I mean, I think I would defy anyone to watch yesterday and not just think that the Beatles are like the musical version of Shakespeare. Yeah, absolutely. And they transformed. Okay, we're going to do this. I don't care. They transformed the culture in the same way that Shakespeare transformed the culture. Because before the Beatles show up, you have singers and songwriters. The songwriters write songs for the singers, and the singers have some kind of studio musicians that back them up. When the Beatles come along, they and the groups that follow them write their own songs, and they play their own music. And they are a one holy uniform act, which, you know, a lot of songwriters were devastated by that because they, luckily they still had people to write for, but it really slammed the music industry in that sense. Um, that was part of it. But also the words became really important. You know, Sgt. Pepper is the first album that had the words printed out on it. I did not know that. Yeah, and so that's when it started to be like the, what they're saying matters. Mm -hmm. They were also writing, they, you know, every song's a love song on one level, but they were starting to write a lot of different things. I urge people to watch several Beatles documentaries, but also watch A Hard Day's Night. A Hard oh, Day's Night yes. is the first music video. Yes, yes, I loved the hot days. Now I watched that, yeah, when I was a teenager. And, and, and the breadth, you know, so you go from I want to hold your hand to Hey Jude. I mean, you've just got 
it's just everything. There's everything. It's in like eight years. Stuff. It's in, astonishing. In eight years. <laughs> Think about how much and include in that the psychedelic era, include in that modernization of music recording techniques because their first album is recorded live, basically in a room singing and playing. You know, the first thing they play, it's pretty much that. And it includes quite a few songs not written by them. You know, Twist and Shout was not written by them. Uh, Please Please Me was their first hit that they wrote. But then by the end, they would never think of putting somebody else's music on their album. Mm-hmm. It's a whole transformation. Yeah. And then uh, you've and then you've got the, uh, so in the film yesterday, what's a really funny part is that he's trying to recreate these songs, right? So he's thinking, okay, nobody else knows that the Beatles wrote these songs. So I'm going to try and pretend that I wrote these songs. And then he's trying to remember them. Right. And, you know, I find that really funny because he's like, got them all up on post-it notes on his wall. And he's like, right, what are the lyrics to these songs? And then sometimes he goes to the places where they wrote, you know, about them. And I think that's a really interesting demonstration of inspiration. Because, you know, when we're talking about the difference between plotting and pantsting, it's like, what is that just explosion of inspiration that you can look at the you know, this is the topic that it's about. I can go to the location. I can try and think of the words. I can try and put it all together. But the reason why I love to not plot things, although I think often that it will be a lot easier to plot things. And sometimes I'm just like, why am I making my life so hard? Is because I get these incredible moments of inspiration. And that, you know, it's like you can write a whole sort of hundred pages and then you'll get this one moment and it'll be total, just genius line. And you think, where did that come from? That was so beautiful to experience the creation of that sentence. I had that in comedy when I would be, I'd suddenly say something on stage that I never knew I was going to say. <laughs> I have no idea where it came from. People are like, you're so funny. Oh, thank you. It's, I can't, I feel weird taking credit for it. Cause I, I know, know. Yeah. it's not mine. Totally. It's like God or whatever wrote that joke. No, I'm just saying, I think it's like you open yourself up to something. And if you're open enough, then magic happens. That's the only way I can explain it. Well, let, yeah. Yeah. And so you try to ride that magic wave. (laughs) It's it's a little hard because like once you try to ride it, it can disappear. Yeah, well, I'm a firm believer in, you know, in the nurturing of the muse. So I think that doing a lot of things that give you joy is an essential part of the writing process. I really don't feel that you can just sit down and be inspired. It's like you've got to woo yourself. You've got to woo the the you know for want of a better word the creative muse so for me prior to lockdown i started to look at all of the things that you know gave me joy and that inspired me so going to the cinema is a huge thing for me um you're not worried you're gonna nick something from a movie no never i mean i don't i don't think that matters even because it's like shakespeare stole plots all the time 
Right. You know, there's nothing new under the sun. Does it right. really, you know, does it really matter? I kind of, if you're saying something, I wouldn't mind if someone did something that was in one of my books. You, if you make something that's unique in your expression of it, who really right. cares? No, good point. I think there's like 18 stories that constantly get retold. So like seven basic plots, I mean, go figure. So, you know, so no, I don't find that. I just, I like, it's like I'm kind of immersing myself in inspiration, you know? I love that. I think that's brilliant. And going to cafes is a huge part of that for me. Go, like literally I feel like I put things down as research. I'm like, right, I'm going to a film, that's research. I'm reading a book, that's research. I'm going to a bookstore. No, sometimes I just go to bookstores and buy books. I mean, I have like so many gazillions of books that I haven't read because just the act of buying a book is inspiration for me. Just the act of looking at a book that's beautiful is inspiration to me. Sometimes just opening one page and reading a little bit of it or looking at the pictures or, you know, it's just beauty is inspiring to me. At the moment, I'm collecting these little um, ink pots, which oh, I'm cute. now... Showing She's you. showing me an ink pot. So when you say an ink pot, there's literally ink in there for calligraphy yeah. or pen? No, oh, I have a fountain pen, but I found these. I love stationery shops. I'm obsessed with stationery oh, shops. Oh, yeah. So yeah. there's a place in London called Finding, Choosing, Keeping, something like that. And they sell these little ink pots that are made by this guy in Basel. And he makes them all by hand. And he has these little corks in them and little stamps on them and writes. In Basel, Switzerland? Yeah. That's so funny because you and I have a lot of friends in common who I live know. in Basel. I know. That's funny. So, you know, those things, fountain pens, you know, be beautiful things. And Do I you ever go to a museum just for inspiration? Yes. Yeah, so I've written my first work of historical fiction. And it's about an artist. So I've been going to the Tate, to the Victorian Albert Museum, um, the Fitzwilliam Museum that we have here, and just wandering around and looking at the pictures and feeling inspired and looking at antiques from the period. Um, just I used to do that as an actor. When I'd be like, I, first of all, you know, if I did a Gilbert and Sullivan, right, let's say I was Sir Joseph Porter in... Uh, Pinafore. Is that in Pinafore? Or, yeah, that's Pinafore. Um, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, listeners, I don't know anything about the Navy. I'm not British. I don't, and, you know, I'm, obviously the song is cute and funny and whatever, and I can do it. But I, I found that I just wanted to go look at, like, 18th or 19th century English paintings, you know, and tea sets at the Metropolitan Museum, you know, like, just like this is the kind of, you know, very posh furniture and all that sort of stuff. It just, uh, it informs you, you know, if you can't draw a straight line, but like, God, it's creativity. There's no straight lines in creativity. If you're a straight line person, you should probably be a mathematician, right? Or a different kind of creativity. Or different, yeah. I mean, so for me, all of my books have food in them and they all have uh. a lot of food in them. So I immerse myself in food. I immerse myself. I mean, your husband is a chef. Your husband is a great <laughs> chef. Mm -hmm. He he literally makes a living being a chef. And I see. Uh, sadly, I don't get to smell any of it. 
but I see it. I see pictures of it on a regular basis. And I'm not even, I wouldn't consider it my favorite cuisine, but I want it when I see that he's made it because it looks freaking amazing. Mm -hmm. And the people who work for him are a great example of the joy that he brings to food too. I just find that the way they look, the wait staff and the, you know, the prep people or whatever, they strike me as like, well, I, they're exuberant. They wouldn't do this anywhere. Like the, he, he, it's like somehow there's something connecting that. Am I right, by the way? That yeah, he feeds yeah. that in them and vice versa? No, it's true. I, I think it's with everything because he actually sold the business um, oh, before lockdown. Know that. Oh my God. Was, yeah, which was kind of lucky timing. Um, but he's been, you know, he's really supporting the guy who's doing it now and, um, you know, with the recipes and everything like that. But he, I mean, we both just love food and we, another show that we're obsessed with is MasterChef. I don't know if you guys have that. We, we, uh, I don't know, but how are you not fat? Um, I don't and I mean, I'm being serious. <laughs> Arthur is a slight man. He's like five, nothing. He's, he's, uh, he's built like a dancer. You are built a little bit like a ballet ballerina. Oh, Eric, you're flattering me now. But I don't, but I, every time I see anything that you post anywhere for our friends, there is hot chocolate and a piece of cake and I don't know where it goes. You're not throwing it out. You're eating it. You're eating that food. I'm eating it. I'm not fake eating. Yeah, it's not a fake post. <laughs> I don't, Are you chasing your children so much? I don't that do that. Burns I mean, hours? Well, I think I do a lot of cycling because my children, um, my son goes to school at one end of town and my daughter goes to nursery at another end of town. So I'm, you know, I cycle sort of, Sometimes gotcha. 20 miles a day. That's ah. right. Yeah, then but I you're can, also, you're a Dutch. Then I, can, then I can eat, yeah, I'm Dutch. So we cycle, I mean, from birth, right? So, but I, <laughs> so I can eat, I mean, I have to eat cake every day. Otherwise I'm sad. And chocolate, I have chocolate after breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I'm quoting you, I'm putting that on Twitter. <laughs> I have to eat cake every day or I'm sad. And by the way, that is so, I'm so celebratory of that. I, I can't do it, but I eat chocolate every day. I, I have like, lint bars in the cabinet, dark oh, chocolate yeah. with salt. Oh, but I like them. Yeah. When we go below three lint bars in the house, I start to shake. Well, I said, it was so funny because I said to Arthur, um, you know, when lockdown happened, I ordered, you know, a huge box of my favorite chocolate bars. And Arthur was like, that's a lot of chocolate. And I said, yes, darling. But, you know, if lockdown, we don't know what's going to happen. Other people were panic buying pasta and, you know, flour and stuff. Toilet paper. You know, <laughs> exactly. And I said, I, you know, I don't worry about that stuff. But if I can't get my chocolate, I'm like, you don't want to see me. You don't want to be locked in a house with me when I'm not able to eat chocolate. It would be like a scene cold. from Train Spotting. <laughs> <laughs> What's your, favorite pretty. what's your favorite chocolate? Um, I differ. You know, I, it depends on my mood, but my basic favorite chocolate is dark chocolate, almonds, and sea salt, or caramelized is, almonds with dark chocolate. Is there a brand? 
Yeah, my, I'm, I am a chocolate snob. You asked me the, earlier if I was a snob of some kind, a movie snob. I'm an absolute chocolate snob. So American chocolate. Oh, no, I'm sorry. We apologize for all of America. Oh, my God. I'm with so you. So bad. So bad. Um, Are you like me? Is Laderock at the top? Laderock, for people who don't know, is a Swiss chocolate company. Um, they do sell it here in the U.S. There's a New York store, maybe two, but I haven't been. I usually, when friends come to visit from Switzerland or Germany, they know to bring chocolate when they stay over. We don't charge people to stay at our apartment, but we sort of do charge them. We charge them a lot of rock. <laughs> Sometimes chocolate-covered marzipan will show up from Germany. It's fine. We'll let people stay. It's not I ideal. I'm not a fan of marzipan and chocolate. I don't know. It's not a big... Um... But the Lauderach chocolate is superb, absolutely superb. I don't think we have it in London. So my favorite in London is Rococo, which is very mm. good, but very expensive. And I bought myself like um, a big box. I can't have it, but um, it's like of these Rococo chocolates and they're ridiculously expensive. And I hide, you know, all my chocolate. I'm like a little squirrel and I have little hiding places all over the house because my daughter is an absolute chocolate freak. And she finds, but she's like a truffle hound and she finds my chocolates wherever I put them. But and she's then only I'll, like four or something. Right four. <laughs> <laughs> and she, you know, and so the other day I came into my office cause I forgot to lock the door and there was little chocolate wrappers. Oh, you, you must've been devastated. I was devastated <laughs> because I'm like, okay, kid, have Cadbury's or something. Have some right. chocolate. You know, you're a kid. What do you know? I so think Cadbury's pretty good, but again, I'm an American and our chocolate sucks. Yeah. So yeah. the fruit and nut bars. You know. It's okay. But, but these are Rococo truffles. Ah. And she's eating, you know, and there's these little wrappers and she's eating them. And I'm like, no, I was, I was so upset. <laughs> and then one time, like, I think my Swiss friends had sent me some chocolate and I'd hidden them in places. And then I came, you know, at some point I was writing a book or something and I opened one of my drawers and there's this big bite, you know, these teeth marks. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when you scream bollocks. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly or worse. Um, I want to transition somehow to so I have to go in a few minutes because yeah. the takeoff is nearly on. And I'm, I'm so sorry. All right, well, so... I have five minutes. You know what? I'm going to have to do a part two with you. Because <laughs> I want to know, I'm serious, because people are going to want to know about your whole journey as an author, like how you got published, how you got an agent, like that whole... That's a whole adventure story that I think is worth, if you don't mind sharing, people are going yeah. to want to know. We haven't even touched on anything about the law because... Part of what I like to do is talk about how people brush up against the law. And, you know, with Brexit, um, and you have relatives who are not from the UK, and I don't I know how that's affected. I did not vote for Brexit. Can I oh, I'm cut. I make know. a point. No one, no one is accusing you of that <laughs> or anything. I don't even know what's going on over there anymore. But it does, there's all sorts of legal crap. So, yes, I, I won't keep you much longer this round. We're gonna do a part two. And I know you're hard to get because you're so busy. And it took me about two years to get this interview, even though we're friends, which 
I, I don't know, we could have a talk about that offline. Um, you know, Holly wants to talk to you too. I don't know how we're gonna make this happen. But anyway, um, let, why don't we wrap up with this, writers. Now, I know you, you were afraid because you were gonna have to not just read Chaucer, but tear him apart or whatever. So you, when you were out of university and when you liked to read for pleasure, who are the people that you read for pleasure? Oh, gosh, I'm just like glancing at my um, shelf. So I basically have two favorite genres, which is fantasy and historical fiction. So I love um, Tracy Chevalier, who wrote The Girl with the Pearl Earring. Ah, yeah. And many, many others. Oh, um, but, you know, if we're talking top five books, then Erin Morgenstern, The Night Circus, the Time Traveler's Wife, Audrey Nipfinger. Oh. Love, love that book. Not so much the film, but the book was... That's amazing. what I hear from many people. Yeah. Uh, conversely, I love Neil Gaiman. I love Stardust. And the movie was superb. So that's another... That might be in my top five films of all time. Is that the Robert De Niro? Yeah, playing a pirate. Yeah. Yeah, and then Michelle Pfeiffer plays one of the witches. Oh, it's absolutely brilliant. Um, I love Maggie O'Farrell, who I think just won the Women's Prize with Hamnet about the son of Shakespeare who died when he was 11. That was like, that was a weepy. That was beautifully written. Um, so yeah, any good Sarah Waters who wrote Fingersmith. Um, she did a lot of, and Daphne du Maurier, Rebecca. Anything Daphne du Maurier did. Um, My Cousin Rachel, Frenchman's Creek. Um, yeah, that's a quick surmise of my favorite books. Cool. Well, I want to wrap this up with a neat little bow. I'm not sure if it's possible. I'm going to get you a second time. Tomorrow, the next day, I'll send you an email to make that happen. But um, do you have any thoughts for aspiring writers? Yes, write every day. That is my go-to piece of writing advice. I've read, I mean, I am absolutely love reading books about writing. Uh, one of my favorites would be Stephen King's On Writing. Mm. Um, but, you know, so many books. And there was one called something like From Where You Dream, and I can't remember who the author was. And he was writing about how if you take one day off, you're okay. If you take two days off, you're on slightly dodgy ground. And if you take three days off, like the whole project is, you know, it's like you're kind of trying to chase something and it's just slipping away from you and you're running like Alice in Wonderland and you're trying to chase this little snake that's sliding away. And I, and the thing is, I don't think it's difficult advice because I'm literally talking five, 10 minutes. Right, you're not saying so many words per day. It's just like no. sit down, pen to paper or hands on keys just to keep the muscle warm. Yeah. Do something, even if it's only one single sentence, but you're in it. It's like, you got to have that immersion in it. And you know, if you don't want to do that, that's absolutely fine. But I think if you are wanting to finish a project, it's supremely helpful advice because it will be a lot harder. You know, Stephen King always says he writes every day, including birthdays and Christmas. And I'm like, I'm down with that. I think that's wonderful. I mean, 
if writing gives you joy, why wouldn't you want to do it every day? It's like I eat chocolate every day and I write every day if I can. Right. Well, those, you know what? What a great way to end part one. <laughs> eat chocolate, write every day. Menavon Prague. I, I'm just going to say it. I love you. Um, thank you so much for being on Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. And I, you promised, maybe you didn't really, but I'm making it that you promised to come back. Thank you so much for being on the show. There you have it, Menavon Prague, a uh, brilliant writer, fun person. Wasn't that delightful? Wasn't there like no heavy lifting? Wasn't it just, isn't she charming? And uh, God, I hope we won the election if you're listening to this. Uh, please wear a mask, take care of yourself, take care of each other, and take home some eggs and muffins. If you have any questions or concerns about the show, just go to isthatreallylegal.com and there's a place for you to leave your comments and I'll happily return your comments, talk about them. Heck, they might even show up on the show. You never know. Maybe you'll show up on the show. Do you think you should? You can again contact me at isthatreallylegal.com and we'll make it happen. Alright, have a lovely rest of your week and uh, please be safe and we'll talk soon.